Again, want to welcome you if you're visiting this morning to Cornerstone. We're glad that you're here, especially, uh, yeah, if you're visiting, you're our guest. We'd love to get to know you. And if you're tuning in by live stream, welcome. Glad that you're here. Our, our uh, passage this morning is in Psalm 40, and you see it printed there in your bulletin. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, maybe even heard it to describe a, situ- a situation that you've been in before, uh, being caught between a rock and a hard place. You know what it's like to be caught between a rock and a hard place? Um, to, to be in a situation where you have two options and neither one of them are good. <laughs> um, you have a rock on one side and a hard place on the other side. You have, to choo- you have to choose between the two of them, but you don't like either alternative. For instance, you might, uh, you might not like your job. That's the rock. But if you quit your job, you're going to be broke. That's the hard place. And you don't like either one of them. Um, you, you may know what that's like. Two equally unpleasant alternatives. You're caught between a rock and a hard place. This morning, I want to approach Psalm 40 through the lens. I want to think of it as, as it being a prayer of a believer, of a Christian being caught between a rock and a hard place. This is the prayer of some case, the rock is a good thing. In this case, the rock is a good thing. As we're going to see in a minute as we read it in Psalm 40, for 11 beautiful verses, the psalmist is reflecting back on a moment in recent past on God's deliverance, a time when God rescued him out of severe trial. And he describes the experience like this. He says, I was drawn up from a pit out of a miry bog, and God set my feet where? On a rock, making my steps secure. The rock there is a good thing. He says, God rescued me from overwhelming distress and planted my feet firmly on the rock. That's his imagery. That's a metaphor for deliverance and rescue. And for 11 11 verses here, the psalmist remembers that, reflects on it, marinates in it, remembers it, and, and, and invites us to learn what he learned about himself and about God as he stands there on the rock that he's been put on. The psalmist here, he, he starts by saying that he waited patiently for the Lord at some time in the past, but the Lord heard his cry and answered him and set his feet on a rock. And, and we might be thinking after we read these first 11 verses that this is the prayer of someone who's made it out. This is the prayer of someone who's been rescued, who, who knows what it's like to wait and not wait anymore. This is the prayer of someone who's, who's made it and who's out of the hard place. And you might be thinking, well, if that's true, I'm not sure if I can relate to that. But then we get to verse 12, and we realize that that's not the case at all. We get to verse 12 and the rest of the the psalm, and we realize that the psalmist is still waiting, that he's still there, that he's still needing rescue, that he's still overwhelmed and afraid and desperate and needy because his, his last words are essentially, God, I'm still waiting. God, don't delay because I'm still waiting. This is the prayer of a believer that's living between a rock and a hard place, who's standing there with the memory of God's past deliverance on the one side and the the very fresh need for God's deliverance in the present on the other side. And brothers and sisters, friends, the, the message of this psalm is that that is the permanent address of every believer living on this side of heaven. That's where you are right now. This is the zip code of the believer living in this world, living between a rock and a hard place. And you you might feel that maybe in a very fresh, raw, vulnerable way, perhaps even this morning. 
you know that God's delivered you in the past. You know that he's never failed you and you need him to deliver you again. You've, been, you've waited for God in the past and you have found him to be faithful to his promises and he's never let you go and life hurts and you don't see a way out of this one. You're living between a rock and a hard place. You can remember the thousands of hard places that he's delivered you from in the past, but you're in another one again. (laughs) And you're living there, and you're just as desperate and needy as ever. Living between a rock and a hard place. Brothers and sisters, this is the zip code of the Christian life. And isn't it refreshing that the Psalms are just so honest about that? The Bible, and especially the Psalms, they're, they're honest about the fact that this is not... This is not the the exception, but it's the rule of the Christian who's following Jesus on this side of heaven. And we need that kind of reminder because we can slip into thinking, well, if if I'm following Jesus and if I'm doing what he wants me to be doing, he owes me some kind of quality of life, right? I mean, things are generally going to go well for me, right? And the Psalms come in and we hear more lament than anything. We hear these cries of a believer who's remembering God's deliverance in the past and needing God's fresh deliverance in the present, being caught between a rock and a hard place, having both a history of God's faithfulness and a fresh need for his faithfulness, standing on the rock and knowing his goodness and his love and his presence, but looking, but looking into a hard place, looking into trial and suffering and doubting that very same goodness and presence. That's our permanent address on this side of heaven. And this is the prayer of a believer who's caught right there where you may be this morning. And that means, brothers and sisters, that if you're there this morning, that God isn't angry with you. And it means that God hasn't left you. And it means that God hasn't forgotten you. But it means that God's pursuing you right there between the rock and the hard place. Let's see how that's true in Psalm 40. This is God's word. I waited patiently for the Lord And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud and to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the, ha- than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. 
Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that by your Spirit you would now come minister your help and your deliverance to us. One more time, O oh Lord, gospel us with your good news, for we are poor and needy. O Lord, take thought to us and be our help and our deliverer. We pray, O Lord, that you would not delay, but that as we wait on you, that you would come and wait on us. Minister, O Lord, the good news of your gospel to our weak, needy, hungry, and thirsty souls this morning. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So how do we live faithfully? between a rock and a hard place? How, how do we follow Jesus faithfully as people who have such a history of God's faithfulness in the past and such a need for His faithfulness in the present? How do we live faithfully between a rock and a hard place? Well, I believe the psalmist here demonstrates how. Um, we're going to follow an outline that I saw in a commentator named Michael Wilcock. He points out that as the believer prays here, he's actually not looking just at the hard place. He's actually not just looking at his suffering and his trial and the difficult things like it's so easy for us to do. But the psalmist here teaches us where to look as we live between the rock and a hard place. We see here that the psalmist, as he prays, he looks, he looks back, he looks in, he looks out, he looks up, and then he looks forward. So follow me as we, as we walk through that together. First of all, as the psalmist prays between a rock and a hard place, the psalmist teaches us to look back, verses 1 through 3. Notice here how he looks back in the past to a time when God delivered him from another hard place, a very similar, uh, difficult situation. It's as if he's reminding us that he and God, he and God have a history. They have a, he has a record with God, a record of God showing up in his hard places. He's remembering that this is not his first rodeo when it comes to God delivering him. And so he starts off, I waited patiently for the Lord. Or in the Hebrew, I waited and waited for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He heard me. Sometime today, you should go back and read the Psalms that lead up to Psalm 40, beginning at Psalm 37, 38, 39, because the theme of all of these Psalms leading up to our Psalm this morning is the theme of waiting. We see that word all throughout these these psalms. And here in Psalm 40, the psalmist is saying, now that waiting is over. I waited and he inclined and he heard my cry. So he's saying, this present time of difficulty that I'm in right now reminds me of that past time of difficulty in which I waited and when God heard me and delivered me. And notice how he describes that time in the recent past. He says, God drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He remembers this time of, of intense and desperate need. It was a trial that was so confusing, 
so disorienting, so overwhelming that he, he, didn't know, he didn't know which direction was up and down. He was so unsettled, so overwhelmed. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what that's like to be in the kind of situation, to be under such intense, overwhelming trial, suffering, pain, that it's just hard to look, it's, it's hard to find what direction to look up or down in. You don't know where you are and you don't know where to go and it just feels like you're sinking, floundering, lost, helpless, and drowning. And the psalmist is saying, that's how I felt. It was so disorienting and confusing and overwhelming. And then he says this. He says, that's the place that God found me. That's where God found me. In the one place where I felt the most distant from him, in the one place where I felt like God certainly could not find me or care about me here. He says, he, says he, he found me right there and he drew me out of the pit. That's the imagery that he uses here. He says that God drew him out of the, fit, out, out of the pit and set his feet on a rock. Now, don't get, the, don't get the picture that this is the imagery of some kind of long-distance uh, rescue operation. This is not the imagery of God hovering over his, his, his children in a trial and uh, at a safe distance and lowering a rope down so that God doesn't have to get dirty or messy. This is the imagery of God coming down into the muck and the mire, into what he calls the pit of destruction, this miry pit. God crawls into it to come after the psalmist. That's the kind of rescue that the psalmist is remembering here and that he's beginning his prayer with. He's looking back in the past and he's remembering the history that he has with God. That God has a perfect record, a thousand percent batting average of always meeting him there in his trials and rescuing him. So he begins by looking back. And brothers and sisters and friends, that's so important. That's so crucial because, because it's so hard. Because it's the one place that we always forget to look, isn't it? When we're experiencing our hard places, when we're caught between the rock and the hard place, it's so easy to just forget, to have our eyes filled so much with the hard place in front of us that we forget the thousand hard places in our past where God has met us, where we've been delivered, the long history that we have with God. It's so easy to have this kind of spiritual amnesia where we forget what God has done in the past and, and where he's proven faithful. Because notice in verse 12, the psalmist, as he's praying, he's reminding us that I'm actually right back there again. He describes in verse 12 the same kind of miry pit that he was rescued from. My evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. And he says, my heart is failing. The same kind of heart that is trusting in you, O Lord, is also breaking. That's where I am again, but I'm remembering that I've been here before. And I'm looking back at what you've done for me in the past. He essentially says here, I'm so overwhelmed that I can't see in front of me, but I can see behind me. And I can see how you've rescued me in the past. So we begin, <laughs> we begin by looking back. As we live, as we follow Jesus, trying to live faithfully between a rock and a hard place, we begin by looking back. And secondly, we see that we, that we look in. We not only look back in our past, we look in, inside in verses four through eight. Now in these verses, the psalmist here, 
he's teaching us, he's reflecting on what he's learned that God is really after in the hard places, in the waiting, in the tension. What is it that God really wants? What is it that God is truly after, what he's chasing after? What is his desire and his delight to see produced in us in our hard places? Well, he begins to go in this direction in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes his trust in the Lord, who does not turn to the proud and to those who go astray after a lie. In other words, he's saying, blessed is the man who doesn't let his heart cling to all of the alternative sources of hope and joy and comfort that are available to us in our hard places. (laughs) And the two alternative sources that he names here are the proud and the liars. In other words, it's the people that would say, you know, you can help yourself. You can do it yourself. You've got the resources. You've got what it takes. You can climb out of this. You got it. That's the proud. And then the liars are those that would say, I don't think God can do this for you. Here, let me show you another way. Let me show you another path to walk down. Let me show you a better, safer resource than this God of yours. He's saying, as we live our lives between this rock and the hard place, whatever the hard place is, there's going to be so many opportunities to put our trust in something else, to give our hearts to something that that appears stronger and safer and more reliable because our hearts are so prone to wonder, so prone to search for salvation when when we're there between a rock and a hard place, so prone to look for rescue in all the wrong places. And the psalmist says he's learned that true blessing isn't found in any of the alternative sources, but it's found in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes his trust in the Lord. So notice this, after he's looked back, he now looks in. He looks in to the inner workings of his own heart. And he's saying, in the hard place, in the waiting This is what God really wants. He wants my heart. He wants my trust. And he's actually not going to stop until he gets it. (laughs) That's what verses 6 through 8 is about. In verse 6, he says, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. He's saying, I know what God doesn't want, I know what God is not delighting in and wanting from me in the hard place, what he's not asking for me, from me. He's not asking for just more performance. He's not asking for some kind of religious external duties. He's not asking me to jump through certain hoops. He wants so much more. Verse 7, what is it that he wants then? What is it that he delights in? Behold, I have come, the psalmist says. He's saying, God wants me. I have come. Here I am with my heart and all that I am. I have come. (laughs) He's saying God doesn't want what I have to offer, what I have to give, what I have to do or perform for him unless they are a way of me giving myself to him. Verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. He's saying this is what God delights in. He delights in me delighting in him. That's what he wants. That's what he's perfectly designed and engineered this hard place for. To get my heart. To pull it back to him. What God wants from me is for me to want him above all else. 
That's what God is after in our waiting. That's what he delights in. That's what he's engineered your waiting and your hard place for. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. All of your trust and your love and your delight. Because God knows that your heart is safest with him. He knows that your heart, your identity, that all of you are, that all of what you are is safest on the rock and not in any of the, any of the, other, the other alternatives. He wants your heart. He'll settle for nothing less. And he's designed your hard places to be such that he pursues you there so that, so that your heart um, <laughs> takes its grip off of everything else. And clings to him. So he begins by looking back. Back at his history with God. Then he looks in. He looks in at what God wants to do internally in his heart. In the waiting and in the trial. Thirdly, he looks out. In verses 9 and 10. He looks out here at the people around him. Um, at what he calls the great congregation. Uh, this, this is the community of believers. His his brothers and sisters, his neighbors and friends, his fellow believers here. And he spends two verses saying that what God has done in me, he doesn't want to just stay in me. He's concerned here that what, is God, that what God has done for him doesn't stay silent, doesn't just say personal and private, but he wants it to spill over into the lives of those around him. So notice verses 9 and 10. He says, I've told the glad news of, of, of deliverance in the great congregation. I've not restrained my lips. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. On and on. Notice how in verse 8 he says, I've hidden your law within my heart. The gospel is sinking down deep into my heart. But he's saying that the deeper it goes in here, the, the further out we want it to go out there. That that's just the dynamic of how the gospel works. The deeper his grace sinks in here, the further we want it to go out there. The psalmist has experienced the free grace and the redeeming love of the Lord. And his knee-jerk reaction is, everybody needs to know about this. Everybody needs to know about this. I can't keep this in. It's not meant to end with me. <laughs> the psalmist here is reminding us of something that hit me hard this week. And I wonder how it hits you. That as we wait on the Lord, as we wait between the rock and the hard place, as we experience whatever the hard place is, the trials, the suffering, the pain, even the overwhelming sorrow and trouble of this life, whatever the hard place is where God has you waiting, <laughs> that it's actually not all about you. <laughs> that there's more to life than what's going on with you <laughs> and what's going on with me. He's saying that even when life is really hard, it doesn't revolve all around me. He's saying, he's saying, cheer up. You're not the only one living between a rock and a hard place. And God may have specifically designed your story and the way that he's meeting you in this hard place to be the one way that he's going to meet someone else in their hard place. He's saying there's a host of people around you that need to hear exactly how God has met you and is still meeting you in your hard place. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Remember, he opens this letter by saying this. He says that God comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. That God has designed His grace to work in our lives and in our hearts so that we're not reservoirs of it. We don't keep it in and contain it, but that we become channels of it. That we become conduits of it to others. He's reminding us that God is always up to a million things at one time, and we might only be aware of one or two of those things. And that means that He may have designed parts of your story, even the most painful parts, to be, parts, to be parts of your story that turn into stories of His grace that will encourage and comfort others in their hard places. <laughs> Meaning that He's got you in mind, but He's got so many other people in mind as well. That's what the psalmist realizes here. It opens his mind up to see the people around him and that God's grace and the good news of His deliverance is not meant to end with Him. So as we live between a rock and a hard place... We look back, we look in, we look out. And then fourthly, verse 11, we look up. Here the psalmist pauses to do what is the most important thing that anyone can do in the waiting, living between the rock and the hard place. He looks up to remember who God is, to remember what He's like, to remember that in the midst of everything changing and feeling so unsettled around him, there is one thing that is not changing and is perfectly settled. <laughs> he looks up, and in verse 11, he says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He pauses here to remember what he knows about God, what's true. <laughs> and he remembers this quality about God's character. He remembers this aspect of God's personality that, that he rejoices in and that he takes comfort in. And it's the fact that God is as generous as he is stubborn. That he's so generous and he's so stubborn. You will not restrain your mercy from me, O oh God. He says, God, I know this about you. That this is what you're like. You've got no halfway setting on your mercy dial. You don't deal in half ways. You, you can't. I know this about you. You will not restrain anything that's good for me. If there's going to be some kind of something, from, something that's good for me, some way for you to show me mercy, you're going to give it to me. You're not going to hold back at all. You're so generous. I know that about you. But then he says he's as generous as he is stubborn. <laughs> the stubbornness of God. He says your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He's saying, I know this about God by now. I know that God is the kind of God who can't let go, who won't let go, that he can't quit. That God, I know you're going to preserve me here. I know that about you. I know that there's nothing that can separate me from your love and that you will preserve me here and that there is nothing that can stop your, your stubborn commitment to be faithful to me, to keep your promises to me. In the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your being stuck between the rock and the hard place, look up. Look up to remember what's true, what hasn't changed. To remember that he's pursuing you all the days of your life. Whether it's green pastures, 
or valleys of the shadow of death. Whether it's standing on the rock or feeling like you are in the hard place. Because as overwhelming as your hard place may be right now, he's at work in it. And he's not left you. And he is harnessing up even the most painful parts of your story to produce what is good for you. And what will bring glory to himself. So the psalmist, he looks back. He looks in. He looks out. He looks up. And finally, he looks forward. He looks forward in verses 13 through 17. The psalmist here concludes with this series of requests of, um, of, of, of his heartfelt desires and his petition, what he wants from God. And his petition is that God would make right what is wrong. That God would come and settle what is unsettled. That God would come and resolve what is unresolved. <laughs> and his petition here, his first ones are aimed at his enemies. Notice he says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let them be turned back. Let them be appalled. Now, what's he praying for here? He's asking for God to deal with his enemies. But notice, these aren't just the people in the psalmist's life that are, you know, just the difficult people. The people that are annoying or maybe the people that are just getting in the way of his agenda. The people that he would be more comfortable doing without. These are... These are the people in the psalmist's life that are pursuing him because they hate God. That are lined up in this world against God, and because of that, they're lined up against God's people. This is actually David who's praying, and as, as the representative of God's people in this world, he feels the world's animosity against him because of the world's animosity against God. In other words, he's caught in the crossfire, and we see this language all throughout the psalms. And brothers and sisters, we experience it too. As ambassadors for Christ, we may not be God's one single representative of his on this world, but we are ambassadors for him, which means that we get caught in the crossfire, that we experience the hatred and the animosity of this world, that God's enemies turn their guns on us. And Jesus says, don't be surprised by this. You will experience hatred in this world because you're following me. Here the psalmist says, as you're caught in the crossfire, as you're experiencing not only your own iniquity and the evil that's overwhelming you from the inside, but as you experience the pain and the brokenness and the hatred and the animosity of living life in this world as a follower in, in the world that hates God, look forward. As you wait, look forward. Live with hope with anticipation, with longing for the day that God is going to put it to rights again. That's what the psalmist is looking forward to here. For a day when God will deal with his enemies and deal with his people because right now it's not balanced. It's not the way that it should be. And so the psalmist is ending his prayer here looking forward to the day when it will be put to right again. He's praying for justice for the restoration of the way that he knows that things should be but aren't. In other words, all that he's doing, brothers and sisters, is praying what we pray every week, thy kingdom come. God, bring your kingdom to bear on this world. You realize every time that you pray that, you're asking, you're asking for God to deal with his enemies in God's timing and in God's ways and for his glory. And you're even praying as someone that you know was an enemy yourself. 
And so we wait. As we wait, as we live faithfully and follow Jesus between the rock and the hard place, we look forward. We wait looking forward to a time when we will wait no more. When we will fully and finally, as verse 16 says, rejoice and be glad in Him. We wait looking for the day, looking forward for the day when there will be no more hard places. Because God will have redeemed all of the hard places and transformed them into stories of His grace. We wait looking forward to when we won't have to look forward anymore. But until then, we wait and we look forward. And brothers and sisters, the good news is that as we wait, as we wait here between the rock and the hard place, whatever the hard place is for you this morning, the good news is that though those hard places may change, though the hard places can come and go, that the rock that you're standing on cannot change, that the rock that you're standing on won't come and go, because the rock is a person. The rock is a person who came down into your miry pit after you. The rock that you're standing on is a person who traded places with you, who was encompassed and overwhelmed by your iniquities and your evil for you in your place so that as you wait and as you experience your hard places, you know that they are not God's judgment on you but they are places where he is drawing you to himself because he cannot crush you there because he's already crushed the rock that you're standing on. And so as you wait, as you live faithfully between that rock and that hard place, look to him, to the rock on whom you stand. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that wherever so that wherever you have um, drawn the lots of our lives right now, whatever hard place it may be, Lord, give us the eyes to see the rock on whom we stand, the rock that cannot change even though our hard places may change, the rock who is our strong refuge, so that we will not be overwhelmed. And so in that, O Lord, equip us to live faithfully, to rejoice in you and to be glad in you. Oh Lord, do this by your spirit for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in your name. Amen.